0: have really strict linkedin feed hygiene so if something has like thousands of of likes or shares i immediately like you don't don't spend time looking at it um immediately click on the three dots and say don't show me content like this the topic isn't, isn't relevant um yeah and if oh, i wow. have somebody I who you, yeah so so do do it religiously you can't even look at it like don't even let your eyeballs um <laughs>
1: Welcome back to the Uptime Wind Energy Podcast. I'm your co host, Alan Hall, with Dr. Rosemary Barnes from Australia, <laughs> from the land of under. Uh, Rosemary.
0: You don't have to call me doctor.
1: <laughs> no, okay. <laughs> Better than mister, I suppose.
0: <laughs> yeah, that's true. That's true. <laughs> we,
1: ha- we have a really interesting show today. There's, there's a lot going on in wind. It seems like the world is awakening and uh, there's just activity all over the place. Let's, let's, let's get started on, a, on a, a couple of things that happened in Texas. So there was some, it's, it's that springtime season in Texas, which means there's going to be tornadoes. And there was a tornado, in, in, or a couple of tornadoes, 18 tornadoes to be exact up in North Texas, just kind of north and a little bit west of, of Dallas, if you know your Texas um, geography. And they had multiple wind turbines that were damaged, the blades that were damaged in those, in those tornadoes. And rosemary, it looked like the blades had melted. <laughs> a couple of wind turbines, <laughs> it just everything drooped. It, <laughs> Which
0: yeah, to me it looks like um, you, like if you grow flowers in your garden and then at the end of the the season, you know, some of the petals have fallen off and the other ones are kind of limp. It's got a really really sad look like that about it. It's not nice to see.
1: It's not good. And what <laughs> what does that? Because there were wind turbines maybe a quarter mile away that weren't affected at all. But there were in this particular case there were like three that were closely grouped together, and they were just blades blades down. The towers were there. The nacelles looked fine. Uh, but what causes the blades to come apart like that? Is is it the twisting motion? Is it overspeed? What 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 does that to a wind turbine blade?
0: Yeah, I guess it's I mean primarily over over speed, and it could be that there was some you know turbulence and sudden changes in direction, but. From the pictures that I can see, it looks like the upwind and downwind sides are two, you know, halves of the blade shell seem to have been separated from each other. And you know, once that happens, even in a small, small part of the blade, then yeah, that is definitely game over because you just got no stiffness anymore. Once, <laughs> once the two sides detach from each other, so oh, and- yeah. I mean, I have to assume that there was some. So, I mean, there were so many blades affected, right? That it must have exceeded the design. Um, yeah, the the design loads.
1: So the, the blades, if if you haven't looked at a blade before, everybody. But uh, the blades are actually built, typically built as two pieces, and they're they're glued together. How strong? And the in the airplane world, when we do things like that, we we put a couple we call chicken fasteners in, so that once that, that bond joint you call them what? Chicken fasteners. A chicken is a kind of a bird. It's in Why America. Why call them chicken? <laughs> Because it's the well, design. <laughs> because the engineers are chicken. That means <laughs> they have they don't have the intestinal fortitude to rely on the glue joint by itself. Oh. So it's, it's it's kind of a okay. quasi put down for stress engineers, I guess. Okay. So we call them chicken fasteners because expensive chickens. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> or or call them peel. The, I think the proper term is peel stop fasteners. Peel stop is the proper term. But in the industry lingo is chicken fasteners, So at least in the United States, it is. So if that bond joint starts to let loose, if you have a couple of fasteners, it would stop that bond joint from continuing to break. But in the case of blades, once they start to let go, if the, I guess if the forces are enough, there really is nothing to stop that joint from unzipping, right? Is that how it, how it would go?
0: Yeah, if it's in a loaded area, which it will be if it sure. <laughs> if it happened because they were under a lot of load. Yeah, and then even if it's not that larger section that you know unzips, you're probably going to buckle the blade then at that at that point where ah, it's missing. You know, because okay. it's all of a sudden just way less stiff at that span wise location, and it's just going to yeah like buckle like a I don't know like a, a coke can that you <laughs> that you uh, you know you can easily <laughs> bend a coke can. That's That's kind of the effect. Ah, okay. Yeah. All right. Usually once, once something goes wrong on a wind turbine blade, if it's in a highly loaded area, then it, it goes from the very first bit of damage to catastrophic failure. It it can happen quite quickly if it's still loaded, if it's under load the whole time.
1: Mm, Okay. So that, that's what looks like what happened here down in Texas. And luckily I don't think anybody was killed. There were some people injured in those tornadoes, but it's tornado season and everybody has to be aware of that. And, uh, I'm not sure what you do if you're on a wind turbine when that happens, but I assume everybody gets warned ahead of time with cell phones that people tend to oh, get yeah. away you can't
0: you can' not climb you can't climb and wind speed's way below that like I mean I've done a lot of on site work and it's one of the really <laughs> annoying things about it is that <laughs> you you have to have to you know if it's a windy period i mean first of all they don't want to, don't want you climbing when wind speeds are strong because that's when they're making a lot of money from generating a lot of electricity <laughs> yeah, true um and, and secondly, it's like 10 or 12 meters per second, usually you can't climb when it's above that. So that's mm. way below even the cutout wind speed of a, a wind turbine, oh. let alone, you know, <laughs> winds beyond the extreme wind speeds. So, yeah, I, I mean, that, <laughs> it would be a major, major stuff up if, if people were climbing at anything like those wind speeds.
1: So are tornado is tornado damage force majeure? Does it fit into the lightning bucket of Acts of God that, insurance-wise, is not covered. I, I wonder if that's the case. I, uh, what, what do you do? Because um, most of the United States in the Midwest, Texas, Oklahoma, Kansas, Iowa, Nebraska, uh, Illinois, Kentucky, most of the Midwest is tornado, some sort of tornado alley, Missouri, Arkansas. Uh, is, if tornado hits your wind turbines, I, I guess the OEM doesn't cover that, right? I mean, that's outside the purview of the warranty, I would assume?
0: Yeah, I mean, if the was, blade was damaged in um, an event where the wind speeds were higher than the, the turbine is certified for, then, of, of course, that's not the fault of the, the company that made it. Um, it. You know, you can have a fight between the, the developer and the insurance company as to who, who is at fault because, you know, should they have known that it would see these wind speeds? I mean, if, if you should have known, then, I mean, that's your, your fault for buying a wind turbine that was unsuitable for your conditions, I would yeah. suggest. But <laughs> uh, we're seeing similar a similar issue here in Australia at the moment, not with tornadoes, but a lot of really, you know, um, natural disasters or things that used to be infrequent natural disasters are just happening constantly now. Um, and I don't know if the tornadoes are getting more frequent due to climate change, but stuff like floods and fires in Australia are. We've just had... A series like within the space of a month we've had the same <laughs> the same town flooded in what should be you know like a one in 500 year flood happening you know just one after the other and people whose homes were, were flooded four years ago and they've rebuilt and now they're flooded again and oh. yeah according to the insurance companies these are yeah like events outside of what you would normally design for but it's clearly not appropriate anymore. And so we're having this big political debate about should we be living in these places? Should you mm. be required to you know, do we need to update what we what we used to call a one in five hundred year flood based on, you know, the historical data? Um, do we need to update that now based on when we don't have enough years of data of, you know, climate change affected um climate to to know sure. what the new statistics are, but Obviously, there's a mismatch. And are we just going to keep on re- rebuilding and being surprised every year or every couple of years? Um, so I, I think these are interesting topics that are coming up all, all around the world. Um, yeah, that's, and that's a really good it's point. a political uh, discussion we've got to have.
1: Sure. And as the wind industry, wind industry grows and we start putting more and more wind turbines and creating larger and larger farms, which we're going to talk about today uh, down in Oklahoma, These wind farms get larger and larger, the probability that they get hit by a tornado, I think, goes up almost exponentially. Almost, right? So then at that point, do you say, maybe we need to have some level of protection against a level three tornado? Maybe. That may be something to think about, just because we're going to become more and more reliant upon wind energy. And like you said, um, if there's changes in the climate that are driving more tornadoes, then yeah, maybe we need to go address it. That's an interesting thought. Because, uh, you know, the other thing that happened down in Texas, which is very interesting, because I've come across some of this before, is moving heavy things around, like wind turbine parts, if there's, because they're so massive and it tends to uh, be on these specially designed trucks for the blades and nacelles and whatnot, uh, when they have an accident or there's a problem with the road, it turns into a big deal. So as they're moving wind turbines through Texas, uh, they had a, a... quote-unquote, component fall off a truck on an overpass and put big holes in the overpass. So it's actually shut down uh, this major overpass in Wichita Falls, Texas, which, if you've been to Wichita Falls, is kind of a busy place. So, uh, you know, Rosemary, we've seen more and more pictures of wind turbines uh, being damaged as they're in transport. We've also seen... things fall off and these these accidents happen over time. One of the things I don't think we've really thought about too much is like the road conditions because you're moving bigger and bigger wind turbines around now. What's the chances that you're going to come across a small patch of road that's not designed for it or has a defect in it or that, are, are we at to that point? Are we at the point that we got to be really careful on the routes we take to move wind turbines around?
0: Yeah, I think We reached that point um, many years ago, actually, um, especially Mm. for transporting blades. and I mean, every part of the wind turbine is uh, affected by (laughs) your ability to transport it there. Like (laughs) um, one of the constraints on how tall towers can go is based on the size of the (laughs) the diameter that you can actually put on a road and and transport somewhere. True. Um, You know, so if if you want to go taller, then the best way to make a – a, a taller tower that's stiff enough is to increase the diameter. Otherwise, if you've got a, you know, diameter constraint, you've got to increase the thickness of the, the steel a lot, ah, you end up with a more expensive power. Um, and heavier. So, yeah, it's a it's a constraint. Yeah, exactly. It's a constraint to um, to going higher, which would make, you know, a better wind turbine because wind speeds are higher up there and you can get, get more power sure. if you, you know, can have a longer blade. Um yeah, and I know that you know with the long, long blades for onshore wind, it's one of the constraints on how long the blades can get. Is you know, can you can you get them onto site? Because it's all fine for a straight road to, um, you know, drive a really long blade along, but most roads right. have corners. <laughs> some some <laughs> of them have bridges. I mean, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Already, you're you know when you're planning a um, a wind farm, then you're looking in the early stages as is is there a route we can get there without bridges that we have to go under um and you know that will dictate what turbine you can sell to that developer um because they might not be able to deal with a you know blade root diameter that um you know can't fit under the the bridges (laughs) on the way there so um yeah the transport it 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 infiltrates more than you would probably expect um not just the design of, of turbines but yeah what you can sell where and I mean, it's led to that's the reason why GE made that split blade, the Cypress blade, because um, yeah, they you know foresaw that this was was going to allow them to get into some um, some locations that the competitors wouldn't be able to get into. Although I do, hey, think are that's, they the own, that's turned out well, to she, not, not be such a big deal?
1: Yeah, yeah, that's what right. I was wondering. Did any? I don't think any of the competitors followed suit with that two piece design. Did
0: they? No, uh, no, not that I not that I know of. And um okay. Yeah, I was talking to somebody from G recently and like, you seem to be making a lot of the Cypress Blades, like one-piece version of the Cypress Blades now. What's what's going on? And he said that <laughs> it's because the competitors had kind of sorted out some of those constraints um, with, you know, ah. like, um, I don't know, ports and roads and whatever. And to be honest... <laughs> It sounded like a bit of a corporate thing to say, Um, you know, like uh, a, a way to be like, yeah, well, our design was awesome, but because our competitors couldn't couldn't match our awesome design, they had to, you know, do sure. some other solution. But yeah, it, yeah. So, so that's that's one interpretation. The other interpretation was that, you know, there's a lot of compromises that you make when you split a blade in half. Um And, right. you know, I still think that the jury is out on whether that's going to prove to be as valuable, uh, you know, the benefits are going to prove to be as valuable as the, the hmm. cost to adding that complexity. And yeah, it's, it's, it's a pain.
1: <laughs> well, it, it's, it brings up the discussion. I think we talked about this a little while ago of, of moving blades around. One of the things you see tossed around in, in the aerospace world all the time is airships or blimps and moving heavy cargo, like wind turbine blades. Maybe it does make sense. Maybe we're at that point that we need to have some sort of airship lifting and, and moving blades around just to get over the road issue. It, it, that, that is very yeah. possible still. You, don't know, you see you, that? I, I see you, that.
0: When you go into a factory, like the number one rule that you learn is that you don't walk under a suspended load, right? Right. The- <laughs> They really really take care to make sure that you're you're not no. like that's the number one rule that they're making sure that everybody everybody follows and I remember one time sure. I was in the factory after like twenty four hours straight of working. I was really tired, and I somehow didn't hear the alarms that were going off about um you know because they've got this gantry system in place and they, right, they sure sure yeah, sure blades and half blades around all the time. And I walked, I walked underneath something. I got, I got really yelled Uh, at by the, um, by, by the, the, the lead, um, for that, the foreman, um, shift. Um, yeah, I can't remember what, what they're actually called. This was in Spain and, and fair enough. And I was, you know, like horrified at myself because I don't like to put myself in danger when I'm at work. Um, but yeah, (laughs) it's, it's really important that you don't walk under suspended loads because Things usually don't go wrong, but if they did, then yeah, you'd be crushed to death. And so that's why I'm uncomfortable <laughs> <laughs> about the idea of blimps delivering really heavy things, is that everybody's gonna be walking or living or driving or, you know, kids playing mm. under these huge suspended loads and the one time that goes wrong, you know, that's <laughs> that's not not cool. So uh. it sounds good, but at the same time I'm not sure that I'm comfortable with it.
1: Well. I think we can do it. We're already walking under those loads already. There's seven forty sevens and Airbus A380s flying around. They're much bigger than a wind turbine blade. Well, at least today they are. Maybe maybe not much longer. These wind turbine blades on some of these uh, newer turbines are massive, massive things. So bigger than they do on occasion.
0: Deliver um, wind turbine blades and wind turbine components by by airplane has on occasion. I've seen that. that I've actually seen that. The cheapest way to do it. Yeah. Yeah. I I was in North
1: Carolina. One time when that, that happened, with the uh, one of those large Russian transport planes came in yeah. with wind turbine components. Yeah. It was shocking. The airplane was massive. Yeah, there you go. Right. Yeah. I don't maybe think maybe, you there. maybe there. So, blade. You know, no, yeah. no, no. Also, no, no, it no, no, doesn't. Not yet.
0: It's not so. It doesn't sound at least environmentally friendly, does it? The, you know, drive really <laughs> just huge wow. masses around in in airplanes for. Yeah, he says, if there's an alternative, <laughs> I'd rather see <say> it used.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, we're still working on it, that's for sure. Uh, down in Oklahoma this week, the uh, American Electric Power is opening uh, a the largest single uh, wind farm in North America. Uh, it's called mm-hmm. the Traverse Wind Energy Center. It has a 998 megawatt. Why well, don't they just round it up to a gigawatt? You know what I mean?
0: I know, like 998. One, one more turbine. I mean, come on. <laughs>
1: just, just spin it up a little faster, right? Can we upgrade some of the generators here just a, a little tiny bit? Because uh, that one gigawatt is pretty impressive. Uh, 998 is like, you know, just not quite there. But it's, it's, uh, yeah. it's a big place in sort of northern Oklahoma. Uh, 356 GE turbines, 2.3s to 2.8 megawatt turbines. That is, that's a lot of turbines to do in one project. Uh, and, it's, and actually, it's only one third of, of two. Of, of, there's two other projects going on simultaneously, which are generating, again, 1.484 megawatts. Why couldn't they just round that up to 1.5 gigawatts? I think that would have been a nice, again, a nice number. <laughs> but okay. So the, 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 the thing about this project uh, is that I think it's the beginning of many projects like this that we're going to see, instead of putting up 50 turbines, 75 turbines in America, I think you're going to see certain same projects and where they are going to be several hundred turbines at a time. So it's going to be interesting to see how that, that project actually turns out uh, because if it does work, you can see sort of the Elon Musk effect of we can power America by, by putting solar cells, solar rays in the one part of Utah and we can power all of America. Mm-hmm. I think that same thing is going to be tried uh, in wind energy Because someone's going to try the Elon Musk thing. Maybe Elon Musk actually tries the solar farm thing and tries to power all of America with a corner of Utah. Okay, maybe, maybe. But as we get more dependent on renewable energy, we're going to need that sort of buffer. Uh, We're going to need to have more than what we could possibly use sort of thing. And so these wind farms are going to get, I think, bigger, don't you?
0: Yeah, I think so. And I did work on I did a lot of work in northern Sweden and the um yeah, the wind farm up there. I mean, there's a, a few in the area, but the biggest one is the um the Mark one. That's the last one I worked on up there and they've got yeah, over over a gigawatt for that area and it's the largest onshore wind farm in Europe. And it's mm. it's interesting how how it all works. So when you put in a wind farm of that size, the developer actually built um like a, a village for all the construction workers on, I think wow. it was on a barge in the river yeah I didn't stay there when I, when I went <laughs> on site I couldn't get couldn't get a spot which I was a bit disappointed about because it would have been really cool um, yeah yeah but you know like they need so many construction workers for the construction period that yeah they just actually built a village for a few years while all that happened and then obviously you're left with a lot of um maintenance uh jobs, operations and maintenance jobs oh, sure. afterwards. So it really changes the the area. And in Sweden, I mean everyone was really happy about it because, you know, it's um it's an area where people had traditionally been leaving the area to get work in the, you know, in Stockholm or in, you know, a big city somewhere else. And so, you know, it kept a lot of really good jobs up there. Um, professional mm. jobs and um sure. what they call blue collar jobs in, in Europe. Yeah. So um that aspect of it is really interesting and i think it it does make sense and especially for wind where you know people don't want a wind turbine in their backyard it's not like like this, people are happy to have solar panels right. on their on their roof but um true you know you, you do you do face problems putting in like a lot of small wind farms is going to be near a lot of communities who will raise a fuss so if you can get sure. one big area where the community wants it um then that can be a good way to get a lot of um yeah, a lot of power all at, all at once, and we're seeing something similar in Australia. Um, all the states have announced these renewable energy zones where they take sure. a site that has good good wind and solar potential and is near um, transmission lines because that's the the problem with that's putting the key,
1: right? putting all your yeah.
0: renewables at once is you've got to get that that huge amount of power, and it's, it's a problem in Sweden <laughs> right. too because there's not a lot of people living up there. So how do you get this cheap Swedish power down to where people live? And in fact, you see. Right. Other industries, um, energy-intensive manufacturing, uh, move move up there because they've got cheap green energy. So that's a thing as well. But yeah, the renewable energy zones are kind of good because you can also yeah you put them in the places where communities want them. They want the jobs. They want you know they they, they want the, the industry in their their town or in their region. And so then you don't need to be fighting with communities against these projects all the time. You you put them where yeah. they're where they're wanted and where things make that's sense. And that's a, it's yeah, a really, it's really
1: interesting good. approach. Yeah, because I, I think one of the issues is the support crews tend to be very small. In most places in America, there's 5, 10 people maybe supporting a, a 50 turbine farm. When you start to get to the numbers, we're talking about 300, 400. Now it seems like there's a little more mass and it, the jobs become a little more relevant, I think, because the numbers are higher. And that's a really interesting take. And I, I do think we're going to see more of this in the future.
0: you and I spend a fair bit of time on LinkedIn, I'd say. And um, I, I mean, I really like that. I've, I've made actual friends by now. I would call them friends on LinkedIn. And I, I find it a really good way to, you know, keep in touch with uh, what's going on in the in the industry and get a variety of viewpoints. But uh, have you noticed it's getting a little bit more annoying recently, a lot more like <laughs> sp- spammy kinds of stuff happening? It's kind of hard to, yeah, there's, I don't know, there's less the, the value to spam ratio seems to be getting skewed recently. Have you noticed that?
1: Yes. It's it's almost like Twitter at some point where there's anonymous uh, <laughs> names behind these accounts and people will start to, uh, to spam you. And it, for the longest time, at least through COVID, I rarely had that happen, but now it happens multiple times a day. And in the wind and energy community, is really on LinkedIn. That's where it exists, right? So everybody we like to talk to and, and hear from is on LinkedIn. But now we're getting this sort of peripheral thing. And maybe it's just us, maybe because of this crazy podcast, we're, we're getting hammered a lot more <laughs> than others. But it, it just seems like we're getting uh, uh, just sort of random accounts that, that don't look like they're real people reaching out to connect. And Rosemary, maybe you've seen some of this already, but you you probably get those inquiries about uh, hey, let's have let's have a meeting, and you can give me all of the knowledge you have in your head, and, and then I can use that to create this white paper or to sell the information to somebody else, to their clients. Do, don't you? Don't you? You get that stuff too, don't you?
0: Yeah, I mean, there's a couple of different things. There's the there's the weird accounts that don't have any followers or any um, you know, that haven't yeah. got any work history. Um, and those right. ones, if 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 I can, then I will, you know, look at my connection requests quickly and i you know just reject those profiles and if they get several rejections um you tell linkedin you don't know them then they have some sort of um you know penalty for that so i think that that's worth ah, worth okay. doing the other thing i did was putting my profile onto creator profile so that people are encouraged to follow rather than connect and i i find that helpful i get less connection requests now yeah. um because yeah what is the point in being connected if you're not actually going to you know have some sort of one-on-one relationship um, so that helps, but then the final point that you mentioned about people getting in touch to um, yeah like get free access to my to my technical <laughs> to your expertise. Head. right <laughs> That really annoys me. I've had a, every every week or two now I'm getting people um, who are they'll say that they have a client you know that they're getting paid to you know do this financial analysis of a of a company and you know then they they do this like um semi kind of flattering (laughs) kind of language, like, oh, you know, (laughs) you're a thought leader and it would be really great to have a meeting of the minds and, you know, spar on this. There's all these like um, (laughs) jargon, these like buzzwords that they throw in there that basically they want me to do some technical, some engineering analysis for them so that they can get paid at a financial analyst rate by (laughs) their client for, um, yeah, yeah, for my – my 20 years of experience in the in (laughs) engineering of renewable energy technologies and that is starting to to really annoy me um yeah Uh, i don't know why there's investment companies aren't going directly to engineers rather than getting you know they they seem to only get financial analysis most of the time and you see that in the kinds of investments that they choose to choose to make it's the same kind of is, you know, like these occasional companies that have really figured out the um, media, <laughs> how to get media attention. And then, you know, they just keep on announcing investments and projects and and the engineering never seems to go anywhere. And I guess that's because never they goes. spend 99% of their effort on the <laughs> on the yeah. fundraising and marketing. Um, <laughs> yeah. So I don't know, to those companies that, you know, have money to spend on, on clean techs, like actual hard, hard tech, you know, hardware. I would suggest that you know you need your financial analysis, but before you need that, you need engineering analysis, and I I would <laughs> recommend getting getting one involved.
1: Paying for it. I, I can recommend That'd a good, be a good one. idea. Yeah, I can right. recommend a
0: good one if you want.
1: <laughs> right, <laughs> I can think of a couple. Yes, exactly. And the yeah. the 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 thing about LinkedIn, I think the the beautiful thing about LinkedIn and wind energy, it, at least for the last couple of years is that there has been a community there and people had some really good ideas and and people would post things that are happening around them locally. So being in America, we only see kind of American things, right? And we see things that happen in Denmark and Germany and India and Australia. And that was the really fun part of LinkedIn is you felt like you're in this sort of professional community and maybe LinkedIn is realizing that uh, it's more uh, beneficial to be more like a TikTok than it does to have a professional community. It it does seem that it's changing some, which is unfortunate because I do like seeing professional people post professional things. And the other thing, you know, I think we're seeing more of is is more political stuff than we have in the past. Mm-hmm. Before, it was like verboten that you couldn't do it. If you did, you just kind of got, <laughs> got swarmed and, yeah. and told to stop by the public. Do you the just public. think but, that's
0: because of, the, because of the current situation with the, the war? I mean, nothing. No, that political I don't has think so. No,
1: no, no, you know. You know, we went through four years of uh, of a certain president, and there really wasn't that much noise on LinkedIn. There was on Twitter and TikTok and all the other social media platforms, Facebook, but there wasn't much on LinkedIn. And then it just seems like there's a lot no, more. But, I mean, things going on.
0: That certain president was bad for you in America, <laughs> but he didn't start any wars. You know, any actual was not not in the way that russia has um so yeah. i don't know but i do have a tip for that and I, I i think linkedin has always had that huge cringe factor and if you like i've always felt like such a such a dork um so uncool for liking linkedin because everyone thinks that it's so cringy <laughs> but um you've got to make the algorithm that you know determines your feed you, you've got to yeah. teach it or train it away from it. like every social media platform has this tendency to like just funnel you into this extreme kind of like appeal to every single person catchy sure. superficial thing yeah um so i i'm i have really strict <laughs> linkedin feed hygiene so if something has like <laughs> thousands of of likes or shares i immediately like you don't don't spend time looking at it um <laughs> immediately click on the three dots and say don't show me content like this the topic isn't is relevant um Yeah, and if I have somebody who, yeah, so so do do it religiously. You can't even look at it. Like, don't even let your eyeballs (laughs) linger.
1: It's not watching your facial expressions. (laughs) I don't. Yeah. (laughs) No, but I I don't know the algorithm. But I'm assuming.
0: I'm assuming that it's like you know every other algorithm where it wants to keep your attention on the platform as long as possible, and probably the amount of time that you spend on a post or if you click the, you know, like read more thing, I'm assuming that that is um, just information for LinkedIn that you love this sort of thing. Um, So even if it's like, Oh, I wonder what, what this says, like if it's got thousands of likes, you just immediately like, don't show me any more of this. And then, um, you know, sometimes it shows you things that just some random contact of yours has liked. um, And you notice the same person coming up, you just, just mute them. You know, I don't want to see this person's updates. Um, and then you'll only see if they like post or something, um, yeah. which I think is is a bit better. Um, yeah, so just doing those two things can really make the feed a lot better. Because I mean, I don't want to lose the, I don't want to just you know go off LinkedIn because that's gotten annoying. Because one thing I really like yes. about it is, you know, like if I'm researching a new technology, I will often go to LinkedIn first to search for it because you look at the comments, you'll see people like. People with expertise in that area arguing different points of view about it, like, oh, yeah, but you failed to see this, like, you know, this engineering consideration or this economic consideration, and so you get a lot, a lot more. I guess you could call it balance. And if you just read, you know, a news article written by a journalist that doesn't understand the context and the broader context and the the nuance,
1: I assume you're talking about Glenn Ryan when he comments on a bunch of engineering technology. I love his responses to all kinds of renewable things. Glenn is right on top of like, that's baloney, or no, that's great, but you haven't thought about that. His comments are actually additive to the conversation where some others are like, oh, that's a great idea. That's that's cool. Those kind of comments don't add anything. Glenn adds something to the discussion. And I think that's what LinkedIn was all about, was trying to add something to the discussion in a professional manner. He does it very professionally, of course that I always think, oh, Glenn's talking about this. I need to read what Glenn is saying because he's a really smart person. So I need to, you know, to, need to absorb this and see what his opinion is. And I think that's what LinkedIn's all about. And that's why I really like it is, is that occasionally you get really smart people. So there's my two cents.
0: Yeah, and there's a few, few like that. I Actually, you know, I, um, I, met, I met Glenn in person on the weekend. That was very exciting. So he's, he's one of my, link, my LinkedIn friends. And um, yeah, now I've met him in person. I, I visited his... Um, his house uh, where they've got a prototype of this Unovate system on the roof. I'm going to make a video oh, about yeah. it coming up soon. So yeah, but it was, it's really funny because we've, you know, um, hung out a lot virtually and to, <laughs> virtually, <laughs> to meet yeah, him in sure. person was, yeah, it was interesting.
1: It's nice, right? I mean, that's, yeah. the, that's the beauty of LinkedIn where a TikTok or a Facebook, you don't do that. And, then, uh, and that's, that's what I hope we get back to on, on LinkedIn and we can have those good, really, you know, get into a little bit engineering discussions because that's what it's about. Talking about engineering yeah. discussions, one of the things that's happening off the coast of the US again uh, is offshore leases. And they just announced an offshore lease off the coast of the Carolinas, North and South Carolina. And that's going to happen in May. So we're not very far away from that. It's 110,000 acres. And they're going to put 1.3 gigawatts, at least that's the plan, off the coast to power about 500,000 homes. Now, we recently had the uh, offshore uh, bidding off the coast of New York, and that raised about $4 billion for about 500,000 acres. So this is about a fifth of that. I, I'm excuse me, I'm guessing this is going to be close to billion, another, a billion dollars, another bid for offshore wind. That's a that's a crazy number, right, for 1.3 gigawatts. Yeah. Isn't that it's not a lot of money for 1.3 gigawatts just to have access to leases? That just seems...
0: Yeah, I don't quite understand the economics of this and it's something because I was at a wind oh, actually it wasn't a wind energy conference it was a, a clean tech conference or just an energy conference in Melbourne a couple of weeks ago and it's something I was talking about with um, a friend of mine who he has been working in offshore oil and gas and um, now the, the company is you know trying to move into offshore wind and mm. we were thinking about you know what's been going on in america with these just immense prices that are being being paid at auction for the the leases right. and how that fits into the australian context because here you know we've got there is one project in particular um the star of the south in um, victoria yeah. they have done all the groundwork for the offshore wind industry in australia you know they've identified identified a site then they've gone through and it's like okay we there's no you know there's no rules or regulations or planning process for offshore wind in australia it's not even technically allowed so you know they've had to kind of um hold the hand of (laughs) of governments and 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 everyone you know (laughs) at at all all levels to to get those frameworks in place they still don't have a, a lease or anything for the the site that they plan to build it but can you imagine if at the end of you know they've been working on it for at least I don't know, five years or so, I would say, and it'll be another Whoa. five probably before they're like really well and truly underway with constructions. Um, construction. Can you imagine if you know after five or ten years of of planning and development work, if the government had a an auction and then you you lost, you know, you didn't get the right to use that, and you lost <laughs> to use that land, you could that, lose. You know, That's that exactly else, right. Somebody else could just come in and. Um, you know, basically get all of that work that they did for free and and you would be able to because they don't have to make back that money that star of the South has, has spent so far on on all that development, and they've done you know like so much work with um yeah community engagement yeah. and you know every every part of it so I would feel like that was hugely unfair if that happened to to them <laughs> um so I hope that we don't immediately yeah. see this auction process in Australia, but um as a government, it must be so tempting because that's a huge amount of money that they they can get. I don't. What do they do with that money when they, when they get it? Do you know? Spend it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, I guess that's what you usually do with money. <laughs>
1: yeah. But is it uh, earmarked for yes. energy
0: transition stuff or anything, or just no, uh, general I revenue? I
1: doubt it. Probably mm-hmm. general revenue. Yeah, it's probably spent before they get it too. Yeah. I would imagine that's the case. Well, it isn't like Australian government's going to be any different than the United States government. If they saw a billion dollars laying in the street, the politicians are going to scoop that up pretty quickly. And I think that's what's happening in the States is that they realize like, holy moly, there's a lot of money out here that we we take advantage of. And then all the states get very active about it and start thinking, well, if they just paid a billion dollars for a site, maybe we can... You know, pull a couple million <laughs> off of the off of the developer too. So it it's it, kind of a cyclical thing, and I think you're right. Maybe it's beneficial, but maybe long term it's not that great of an idea. So well, you know isn't what it do you going to make yeah. the
0: cost of that energy higher? Um, because you've got this yes, you know, huge, it has to right? uh, Yeah, I don't know. Um, it's not sort of
1: overhead to carry with a project. Yeah, right. Mm-hmm. And so one of the things about this this particular um, auction that's going to happen is the um, the U.S. government. I just make it simply. The, the U.S. government is going to offer a twenty percent credit to bidders if they commit to invest in programs that will advance the U.S. offshore wind industry, workforce training, and supply chain development. So, if you got a twenty percent discount, so this is just say you put the billion dollars down and you won the auction, you'd only be paying eight hundred thousand for that lease space. But the, I'd assume that the other two hundred million dollars would be poured into the local community. Maybe that's the maybe that's the deal right there is that the that 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 cash at twenty percent discount does kind of get you does get funneled into the local community well for for workforce training. That would that I think that makes total sense for the wind industry to, to be involved in that and the supply chain development, because we just don't have a supply chain in the United States at the moment and most countries don't. Uh so maybe maybe this is a, a different take on it. Maybe it'll work. Uh, it's it's one of those things that kind of gets fleshed out. And like you're saying, we did talk to s- just as an aside, we did talk to uh, maybe a potential future guest that's working on some offshore wind in the United States. And one of the one of the issue was uh, getting workforce training together and how big of an issue that is. So it kind of ties in right there. And uh, hopefully uh, that guest will come on shortly because we're really interested to hear that story.
0: I like the idea of this um, th- this discount if you have you know, benefits for the local community. I, I think a lot of countries require local content um, to, you know, yeah. get a, a project at all. Um, but in a way, this this new plan, maybe that makes more sense because the developer can then decide which parts are best to, you know, feed into the, the local community, like where are the existing capabilities that can be built upon. Because I think if you just kind of impose that everything has to be built there, you can end up with, you know, causing big delays or um, big cost increases if if you're you know imposing that something needs to be built there that there is just like zero capability currently, you need to wait for that to right. to build up and it can really put a put a handbrake on the whole, whole whole project. And I mean, people are pretty keen to get renewable energy projects developed fast now, especially you know with the volatility or not even volatility, just price rises of fossil fuels. Um, so I think that it is smart to allow some flexibility, but you definitely need to have local benefits. And I think going forward, everyone's aware that we've probably offshored too, too much. Um, too much. And it was good at the start and now, now it's bad. Um, yeah, I yeah. mean, even just for, for, for costs aside from security or, or anything else. So I, I think it is really important that we, we develop those capabilities in, you know, in the countries where the energy is, um, it, it needs to be. And I think this is a good way to do it to make sure that it doesn't slow everything down.
1: Yeah, I, I, think, that's, I think you're right about that. And the National Renewable Energy Laboratory, NREL, just put out a, this really big report talking about um, onshoring in the United States, and particularly on this 30 gigawatts and by 2030 on the East Coast of the United States, they, they, they went through sort of the supply chain piece of it and the, the, the workforce training piece of it to see what you would need and how if could could you get to twenty thirty with those thirty gigawatts? And the numbers are really staggering. Actually, you're going to need about twenty one hundred wind turbines, about seven thousand miles of cable. Uh, you're going to need four uh, vessels just to lay the cable. You're going to need eleven op- service operation vehicles uh, vessels. You're going to need five to six wind turbine installation vessels. And those are things we don't have at the moment. By the way. And in terms of, uh, of employees, you're going to need it between, depending on how much you onshore and how fast you onshore them, you need between twelve and 50,000 full-time employees. That's a lot of people by 2030 to, to pull that off. And it, it, the, the question really is, do we have that capability? And some of, the, some of the technology pieces, Rosemary, are really fascinating because there tend to be more heavy industry that you would assume would be in the United States already because we built cars, we built ships, we built airplanes, we do all these things. But in very specific wind turbine focused areas, we do not have that capability. And, here, and let, me, let me list some of them because I, I think they're interesting. And I don't you know how US or Australia or a lot of countries could even respond in a short amount of time because these things take time to develop because the industry takes time to develop. So big one here, yaw and pitch bearings. I guess you don't make your own pitch bearings in America. They must be coming from overseas somewhere. Interesting. Uh, permanent magnets, especially with generators, right? You need permanent magnets to do that, and a lot of that comes from overseas. Uh, cast Large castings and forged components. I, I guess they're talking about hubs and um, generator casings and that kind of thing. Steel plates for the monopiles and towers. Uh, that one seems odd, too. But, okay, maybe we just don't make the steel plate here like we used to. Electrical s- systems, and the one that doesn't make any sense is mooring chains. Like we can't make mooring chains in the United States. We don't have anybody making any chain in the United States. Maybe we don't. <laughs> Maybe we don't have anybody making the chains. But when you start breaking down that list, you can't build a wind turbine without ha- ha- having heavy heavy steel capability. You need that. Yeah. So you can't just you can't just work around that. <laughs> so do you see yeah. that there's, there's going to be I this kind of big problem coming
0: a lot of it seems to be related to steel steel manufacturing actually i I would guess that that's your problem i mean china does nearly all of the the world's steel um you know processing it from making it from iron ore and turning it into into steel and into plates and you know whatever else that you need um of course the u.s used to have those capabilities and i'm sure that the reason why it moved was because of cost um yeah so i guess that that's just a, a strategic decision that can be made to, you know, to, to bring it bring it back onshore and pay a little bit extra cost. I, I think it's going to happen around around the world, partly because of you know security, but also I think partly because um, as advanced manufacturing becomes more, more of a thing, um, the cost of labor isn't quite so important as it probably used to be, um, and. I know the cost of labor in China is is going up in any way. It's not the really like super low sure. cost labor that it that it was at the start of the, you know, process of globalization. So right. I think that we're gonna see a lot more manufacturing um done in the in the place where the either the <clears throat> the raw materials are mined or the final products are, are used. And I think there'll be a nice side um side effect beneficial to climate change in that a lot less stuff, heavy stuff is gonna get shipped around. So in my opinion, that's going to be one of the the biggest changes to, you know, to decarbonizing. Shipping is a really big, big problem. It's a hard to abate sector. And I think a lot of it's going to come from just shipping less stuff from, um, yeah, like re, re, yeah. not reversing, but, you know, the next phase of globalization, it's going to, I think we've seen a, a peak of <laughs> making things just all around the world, wherever it happened to be the, the cheapest. And we're going to, yeah, the, I mean, it's going to change where like, the overall cheapest system cost is going to change um and i think we'll see right. less, what, less shipping
1: do, do you think that in the united states i'm guessing the steel factories that do remain are the ones that have been shuttered at least in the recent past are we probably coal fired uh, that you think that if we do start up those those bills big steel factories and and the processing that we'll be doing it new like with hydrogen or or some electricity based. i mean I, we've I think you mentioned that there's a new way of making steel that that is much more environmentally <laughs> friendly. So are are we going yeah. to go down that pathway with some of this, it's funny, uh, actually. You know, this, this new money? <laughs>
0: it's funny you mentioned that, because if Dan was here, then he would have a go at me for um, plugging my YouTube channel again. <laughs> but that's actually I have a video coming out soon on on steel on how to. Um, you can't say decarbonized steel because obviously decarbonized steel is just uh, iron you need <laughs> you need iron, some right. carbon in there. <laughs> you need some carbon in there otherwise it's not steel. Um, but yeah, so it is it is a topic that I've been um, researching recently. I think in the US you have a lot of uh, what you call mini mills so there's electric arc furnace so you take scrap do. And, um, mostly scrap and you use electricity to make it into. Um, new steel products and so i mean that's already um, environmentally friendly and um and cost effective but it only works you know to maintain the you can only take steel products that are at the end of their life and turn them into new ones you can't you know like expand the amount of steel you use each year and i i think even if you just look at the energy transition um let alone all the you know bridges and whatever else you want to make with steel um you know wind turbine towers made from steel a lot of um frames of solar panels are made from steel hydro sure. everything uses steel so you're going to need more and then yeah the options for that hydrogen is a really good technology for retrofitting existing um that you can replace uh, you can replace coal with um with hydrogen basically so you still use your, your blast burners um and instead of reacting carbon with the oxygen and iron ore you react hydrogen um or there's some other things you can use as well or you can replace it with mm. biomass um, and those are really fast things you can do. And you see companies are are doing that. Now there are projects happening. Um, but then the next wave is probably going to be, um, some, some other processes that use electricity and go directly to steel. So there's like the, um, Boston metals method where they do this high temperature electrolysis, um, I think they called it, oh, I can't remember what they called it, molten, molten, something electrolysis. Um, and then there's also a low temperature version of that as well, where you um, dissolve the, the the iron ore and um, yeah, reduce that that solution and and end up with with the, yeah with iron at the end of it. So th- those Isn't couple it- of technologies uh, need new equipment and um, it's a new process. So so those are probably a new ideas. Away, but yeah, new, you think new so? ideas. Well, maybe
1: maybe not. Right? Maybe they are not a decade away.
0: It's a it's a commercialization thing. It's not the the science is is fine, and you know everyone's <clears throat> excuse me, everyone's had um uh, demonstration projects, but it's yeah, it's a you know taking yeah. it from we did this once to now we can make you know t- thousands of tons <laughs> of steel using this process.
1: <laughs> well, that's what then that, you, you don't get into those accelerated development cycles until there's a real demand, right? And maybe this is mm-hmm. the the new demand is is this offshore wind maybe driving a lot of different industries to to become yeah. greener and try new technologies, which is good. I mean it's sort of like an offshoot of something that we need, renewable energy, and then we develop these other technologies and now we're making cleaner steel. Hey, mm. that's great.
0: Yeah. No, I agree. And if, if a lot of your, you know, supply chain pain points are related to steel and you um you in, in the US, I say you, I mean the the US, you you represent the whole of sure. <laughs> the United States <laughs> to me. Um <laughs> If you are going to expand your steel manufacturing industry, I, I do hope that it's not going to be by buying a lot of blast furnaces and um, and coking coal. I hope that it's it's going to be with some some cleaner stuff. And if you're starting from scratch, then it it makes more sense to go yeah. through the yeah the direct reduction or electrolysis routes rather than going well, for a blast furnace. I would suggest.
1: We'll see, right? I, I think that's. But I, I, these discussions are really are really good right? to let people know there are other alternatives to. Sort of 1950s or 1890 technology, yeah, In think, terms of steel well, and in industries, <laughs> yeah. Mm. Well, it is. We, we made steel for a long time in the states, right? And we, we started dirty, yeah. and it's gotten cleaner over time. And hey, let's let's. It's a new generation. Let's make it better. I, I think that'll do it for this week on the Uptime Wind Energy Podcast. Uh, thanks for joining us today. If you have some time, go check out rosemary's engineering with rosie youtube channel with its hundred thousands of of subscribers it's a really good time there's actually a (laughs) a lot of a lot of good a lot of good episodes on there so if you want to learn something about renewable energy or or wind energy it's probably on rosie's channel and you can check us out on apple and spotify and stitcher and all that normal podcast platforms. so thanks for joining us this week we'll see you next week on the uptime wind energy podcast